Last week we saw from the beginning of John chapter 14 that Jesus wanted his, his deeply troubled disciples to believe in God, he said, and also to believe in him. And specifically, this is at the opening part of this chapter, they were to believe that he's going to the Father's house and he's going to prepare a permanent dwelling for them. And the Lord said there, if he goes and he prepares a place, he will come back. And the consummation of all our hopes and desires, he will take us to be with him where he is. So like that set of truths, what I, what I refer to as life inside and underneath the two arches of the ascension and the second coming. Right? The two arches, the ascension and the second coming. This is Jesus holds comfort. The basic framework of Christian comfort for distressed hearts. So today, continuing in John 14, I want to make two points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. The way and the works. The way and the works. So first the way then. So John chapter 14, verse 4, Jesus says, now he's speaking to his disciples, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now for Jesus, the way to the place where he's going, the way to the Father's house, is his cross and his subsequent exaltation. For us, as you know, the way will be Jesus himself. But for now, Thomas is confused. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I don't know the destination. If I don't know the destination... How can I know the route? I don't have the location in my GPS. I need directions. One commentator said, this may be the first time in history a man ever asked for directions. (laughs) So Thomas is very confused about what Jesus is talking about. And then in verse 6, we get these very famous words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the context here from last week helps us, I think, see this a bit more clearly. Jesus Jesus is the way. Well, the way to where? Or the way to what? Well, he told us last week. The way to heaven. The way to the Father's house. The way to your everlasting dwelling. The way to the room he's preparing to share with you when he returns. Not only is he the way, he says, but he's the truth. The truth of God's self-revelation to us. Truth then becomes, for Christians, deeply personal. And he is the life. Life itself. Resurrection life. Unmeasured life. Divine life. Eternal life. Abundant, free life. Thomas Akempis, a well-known 15th century author, wrote the famous book, The Imitation of Christ. He famously said, Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. 
It's a stunning claim by Jesus, all the more difficult to hear, I think, because it's so familiar. Christianity is, and this is to state the obvious, Christianity is about Christ. And Christianity is unique because Christ is unique. It's unique and singular. It's not in the class of religions in general. It's unique because Jesus is unique. And Jesus does not fall into the class of religious leaders in general. Right? There is not a class of things called, called world religions of which Christianity is the best one. Nor is there a class of world religious leaders of whom Jesus is the best one. The Christian claim is that Christianity is unique and singular and doesn't fall into any class because Jesus is unique and singular and is not a member of any class. And that uniqueness is seen right here in this text. Unlike other religious figures, noble as they may be, none of them make this claim. Jesus does not know of a way to God. He is the way. And that's the uniqueness. He doesn't know the truth or simply point to the truth, but he is in his own person the truth. He doesn't teach or simply give pointers to life-giving, spiritually enhancing reality. He is life-giving reality. I mean, it's a shockingly broad claim Right? Because the way means a path and a destination. Right? And the truth means having real knowledge about reality that's reliable. And to be the life means we're somehow escaping from this in, you know, being enmeshed in the web of death. What, what is it to be human except to live and to know and to ascribe some kind of meaning to the narrative of our lives? We naturally aspire for this sort of order and meaning. And Jesus is claiming to root it in his own person. So that the Christian faith finally is not about some system or some path to enlightenment or even a set of freestanding spiritual techniques. It is about this person. This person. Who never becomes for us Jesus does, never becomes for us an accessory. So, what is Jesus doing? He is saying that I alone am the ground of the mystery of human existence, right? Of your origin and of your destiny. I am the door. I am one with the Father. I have life in myself. I raise the dead. I judge the world. I am the resurrection. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we see this repeatedly through John's Gospel. To be confronted with Jesus is to be confronted with these utterly singular, unique, unprecedented claims. Totalizing claims. No one, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice this 
it's not only a, a unique claim, a singular claim, a claim unique to Jesus. It's exclusive. No one comes to God except through me. Now, here's a good bumper sticker for your car. Jesus does not believe there are many paths to God. Right? Jesus does not believe there are many paths to God. Now, you shouldn't have to say that in a Christian assembly, but you do. Now, Jesus does not believe that there are many paths to God, but it's not because he's provincial, meaning it's not because he's narrow-minded or intolerant. This is important to get, I think. It's because he is the fullness of deity in bodily form. He is undiminished God, right? We saw in the very prologue of this gospel that he's the flawless and full word, which is God. The living interpretation of the Father, who fully discloses the Father. Right? That's why his next words here are, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So think of it like this. This is a, a, simple, and a simple and I hope hopeful, helpful way of putting it. If you, if you want to give an answer to a question, let's say the question is, what is 2 plus 2? The answer to that question is four. You would not be rational to be open to other answers, to think there are many paths which are equally fine as answers. Right? In the Gospel of John in particular, we see this. The answer to the question, who is God? What is he like? How can I know him? Is Jesus Christ. So he's this complete and final, and full, and decisive, and thus he is the only answer to the who, and the what, and the how questions about God. Now, if Jesus is not God, sure, there could be many paths to God. If he is God, the fullness of God undiminished, there can't be. In the nature of the case, he alone is the way. And this has nothing to do, nothing at all, to do with being intolerant. Right? It has everything to do for us with simply trusting Jesus' own words. Right? The Christian church does not decide what it's going to believe. It listens to what it's told in Scripture and believes that. And we have the words of Jesus over and over declaring there's no gap between him and the Father. That he's the Father's word and the Father's son and the Father's image. That he's the Father's face turned to the world fully in love. And so here he says, no one comes to the Father except through him. So yes, it's exclusive. After all, this is the narrow way. Right? Jesus says there's a narrow way that leads to life. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. But listen to this. The narrow way is not the narrow-minded way. Right? The narrow way is not the narrow-minded way. 
In verse 8, Philip, Philip's had a little trouble in this gospel. He's not yet up to speed. He says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. I mean, that's a natural human question. Human beings ask it. They want to see God. People ask it today. You know, if God would just do this, if he would just show himself in this way. We have a sort of appetite, I think, for the vision of God. And Jesus replies here with a rebuke of sorts that shows some exasperation, maybe even a little sadness. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? Like, Jesus has had three years with these guys. He's got like an hour and a half left. And there's some massive cluelessness that's still out there. But Jesus is very tender. You know, he does say, how can, how can you say? How can you say, show me the Father? Like, I've been doing this for three years, Philip. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. There's this story, I think I've told it before, about Ingmar Bergman, famous filmmaker, going through, I, I think it's a cathedral, looking at all the pictures in this time of great spiritual desperation and, and begging God to somehow speak or do something miraculous or, or show him himself through these pictures. And he gets through the whole cathedral. He gets no divine response or answers. He walks out you know, back into the unbelief and atheism of the world. The, the, the tragedy of that is a failure to see and hear God where he has said he's to be seen and heard. Right? So there's all this desire to see God do this or do that or show himself this way. And you have Jesus saying to us, just like he said to the disciples after three years, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The human soul has a craving for almost anything but this. It's that simple, Philip. I'm the full reflection of the Father. And not only that, he goes on to say to Philip, the Father and I inhabit one another. We indwell one another. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I am interior to the Father, and the Father is interior to me. The closest, most intimate kind of oneness, the deep unity of two divine persons, And this oneness is why Jesus cannot be away. When we talk about the exclusivity of the Christian faith, its uniqueness, it's a statement about Jesus being the fullness, we heard this from Hebrews 1 today, the complete exact imprint, the full radiance of the Father's glory. So from the point of view of the Christian faith, There cannot be, in the nature of the case, another way to God. There can't be another way which doesn't make this Jesus into a liar and a fraud. If you want two ways to God, you're going to have to get rid of this Christ. So, Jesus is one with the Father, and yet somehow distinct from the Father. He says... That the living Father in him is the one who's doing all the works he's doing. Right? He's not only one in being, he's one in action. The words and works I do, those are the Father's words and works. 
And the reference to the works then brings us to the second point, the works. So that's the way, now the works. So, and it's here where the, where the text turns a little bit. We see that we who have come to the Father, we have come to the Father through Jesus, we're comforted because He's going to prepare a place and He's going to come and take us to Himself. We are not left simply staring up into the sky. Right? Jesus says here, we have work to do. We have a grand commission. And we have empowerment for that commission through the Spirit, which Jesus does not actually mention here. Lord willing, we'll see he actually mentions the coming of the Spirit for the first time next week. But it's implied here. Right? The Spirit is the Spirit of the risen, the ascended, and the coming Christ who's preparing a place for us. That Spirit is a vocation for you. It's a task. Jesus puts it this way, and this is startling. In verse 12, he says this, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I go to the Father. That's astonishing right there. Just the first half is difficult. Okay, you're going to do, now that you have the Spirit, the things Jesus was doing. And then Jesus says, no, tell you what, you're going to do greater things than that. The ascension then for us means both a heavenly orientation and vigorous earthly action. Now, the greater things here, it's hard to believe it can mean greater bodily miracles. It's hard to see how there could be a greater miracle than the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I think we are meant to speak of these greater things under two headings. Two headings. The first one is proclamation. So I'm going to talk about the greater things that Jesus calls the church to through the gift of the Spirit. Now that we know who Jesus is, he's the way and the truth and the life. What does the church do filled with the Spirit? Well, the first thing she does, right, is she proclaims the gospel. Primarily, the greater things almost surely means that the church can now proclaim the gospel of this exalted Christ over all things. These are the greater works which we actually see begun in the book of Acts. Right? What happens in the New Testament after Jesus ascends and he sends the Spirit? The empowered church goes through the world proclaiming the gospel. And those works continue to this day. Jesus is saying something like this to us. The works I did, they're mighty works. They're the Father's works. But they are, this is important to see, the works Jesus did, they are on this side of the resurrection. The works you do are in the resurrection order with the gift of the Spirit because Jesus has gone to the Father. Now you can do something, if you will, that Jesus couldn't do. You can proclaim the risen Christ. In the power of the Spirit sent from the risen Christ. That's an astonishing thing to think about, right? There's a sense in which the church can do something greater than what Jesus himself did. Because it's Jesus who is risen and sends the Spirit. We proclaim the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. And this proclamation shows forth clearly to the world who Jesus is. These same disciples will get it a lot better on the other side of the resurrection. 
So there's something about what the church is called to do which is greater than the resurrection of Lazarus. Because as we said, when we looked at that passage, right, Lazarus dies later. Right? And the, the healing of the blind man is really a, a parable, a sacrament toward spiritual renewal and regeneration. So, I think we can see that this way of reading the greater things is supported because this is precisely what Jesus commissions the church to do. The risen Jesus, right? In Matthew's gospel, when he says to go throughout the world. In Mark's gospel, when he says to preach the gospel to every creature. And this is what we see the church doing. So the very first thing that we are to be consumed with or taken up with in the Christian life now that Jesus has ascended is proclaiming the gospel, bearing witness to this good news by the Spirit. And the second thing which the ascension enables is prayer. Prayer. Now we saw on Ascension Sunday that it is not possible to engage in Christian prayer without the ascended Christ in the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus links in this text, notice this, notice what he does. He links his going to the Father with your prayers. Verse 13, I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name. And then he repeats that promise. And it's an audacious promise. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now this promise has been lifted out of the context and distorted by many a Christian preacher. Right? This is not some sort of carte blanche, like credit card. Right? It's not an open-ended promise. The mere fact that the prayers must be prayed in the name of Jesus means we are not talking about praying in our own names. In one sense, they're not even our prayers. You know, if, when you take a text like this, as some formulaic way where there's a series of steps that you have to follow, and if you follow those steps, you get what you want, that's a form of idolatry. That is an attempt to manipulate the unmanipulatable God. To pray in Jesus' name, of course we all know it doesn't mean simply tacking that on at the end of our prayers, but it means this. It means to pray in conformity with his will. Revealed in his word, aligned with his purposes. Or let me put it another way. It means that your prayers should be addressed to the Father as if the Son was making the request himself. That's how Christians pray. We pray in the name of Jesus because we are presenting Jesus to the Father. The Father denies nothing to the Son. Jesus tells us. And Jesus answers these kinds of prayers, the text says, so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. I've said it before, but I want to remind you of it again. Too much of our prayer lives are interrupt-driven prayers. This thing happens, that thing happens, some unfortunate things happens over here, and then we pray. But the heart of Christian prayer is kingdom-centered. Right? Focused on these sorts of things. Notice that our prayers then are to continue what was happening in Jesus' earthly ministry. And what is that? 
It is the Father revealing His glory in the Son. I mentioned last week that we don't often pray for the resurrection of the dead. We may not pray enough either simply for the Father's glory to be seen in the Son in the church throughout the earth. Right? Jesus has this passion for the Father's glory, and our prayers are to be to see that glory unveiled. This is why the prayer that Jesus gave us starts with, Hallowed be thy name, and ends with, Thine be the glory. The glory of the Father is the beginning and the end of Christian prayer. So I want to conclude here by just trying to talk just a little bit more about the the deeper connection between proclamation and prayer. If those are the two greater things that we're called to, how are they connected? Well, I think it's easy when you look at this text. They're connected in Jesus Christ himself. It's very critical for us, beloved, that we have the highest, most exalted view of who Jesus is. That, of course, requires that we have the right view of who God is. But John's gospel, among many, many benefits from it, it's very strong medicine to heal us of low or deficient views of Christ. There's no way to get through John's gospel unscathed if you think there are many ways to God. You're going to have a choice. Abandon your belief or burn John's gospel. So, the one that we're talking about is the one who is God the Father Almighty in human form. And once we see that, it's obvious that in the nature of the case, the incarnation is unrepeatable. You'll often hear someone say, well, I think there could be many incarnations of God. That is a monumental failure to understand what the Christian church has held from the beginning about the nature of this incarnation. This is the full, unrepeatable, total, decisive, end-time revelation of God in our flesh. And therefore, it needs no supplements. It needs no additions. And so, who Jesus is is critical for us, and John is concerned about it. Really, there are two things, right? Who he is, what he does. The church tends to be good on the what he does stuff, but often tends to thin out who he is. So, this is the one, then, that you are to boldly proclaim. Right? What does Paul say to the Corinthians? We proclaim Christ. This is not complicated. I hope you don't leave here confused about what we are to proclaim. Paul says we proclaim Christ and him crucified. He tells the Corinthians. He tells the Colossians, him we proclaim admonishing every person, teaching every person, that we might present every single person, every last saint, perfect or mature in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, that is, as Yahweh, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. 
And the same one that we proclaim is the one to whom we pray. That's the connection. The same one we proclaim is the one to whom we pray. And this means that our prayers then, our prayers have to be oriented toward, I said earlier, our prayers should be oriented toward the kingdom, toward the Great Commission. That's just another way of saying our prayers should be oriented toward the church's proclamation. Right? We should be praying. Paul shows you this in Ephesians 6, in that great passage on spiritual warfare toward the end. He says that you should pray for the proclamation of the mystery of the gospel. That it, that it may go forth boldly. Right? Both here and throughout the world. And to that end, I want to remind you, we have a new evangelism committee. We had a wonderful first meeting this past Tuesday night. I encourage you to pray for its success, for its wisdom, for its prosperity. I encourage you to think about whether God would have you join so that we can be more faithful and diligent in proclaiming this gospel and extending the sphere of God's mercy and charity in the world. And if you do feel led to join, then see Dave Reese. He's sitting right over there. So, we should be bold. I love that hymn which says that we are to bring large petitions to our king. Large petitions to our king. And it's no coincidence, beloved, that Jesus goes to the Father. He declares that you will do greater things. And then he gives you the strongest encouragement to pray and ask anything. Anything. In his name. Don't give up on those unbelieving friends and relatives that you've been praying for for years and now you've forgotten. You can ask anything that has to do with his kingdom and his power and his glory in the earth. You can ask it. There's a great relief in this too, by the way. In other words, one of the things we do in prayer, among the many things, is we make God responsible for the disordered situations in the world. We confess to God, I am not the Holy Spirit. You save this person, O Lord. It's a terrible burden to try and be the Holy Spirit. Prayer unburdens you from that burden. It's a wonderful, liberating thing. And it unleashes God on the world. So now, we're a long way from the beginning of this chapter where Jesus comforted the hearts of his disciple with the hope, the promise of heavenly glory. We see now that having received that comfort, we labor in this age. Right? You have died and you have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God between the ascension and the second coming. And in there, you are filled with the Spirit for two basic things, proclamation and praying. What's the charter of Christian proclamation of the gospel? It's the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Jesus' charter for this. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore, go. And the Lord's Prayer is the charter for our life of prayer in support of that very proclamation. Both the Great Commission and the Lord's Prayer are oriented to the same end, the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom of Christ in the earth. So 
So proclaim this. Pray fervent, constant, large petitions for the prosperity of the proclamation. Because we are, and we should not lose sight of this, we are, by God's grace, in our own small and growing way, here at Westminster, we are part of the greater things. Right? We're part of these greater things that Jesus said we would do because he goes to the Father. Glory be to God. Amen.